Good morning, church. It's good to gather this morning and have the opportunity again to open to the Word. Uh, In the uh, last year, many of you know that we have spent most of this last year in the book of Acts, a year-long journey. And today we officially conclude that study. Some of you who were here over the summer know this is the second time we've concluded this study. This is really it. (laughs) One of the things that we've observed in our study of Acts is a great diversity among the believers in the early church. And this morning, I want to conclude our study by asking this question. What does it mean that the church extends to the peoples not only of Jerusalem and Judea, but also to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A fundamental implication of what it means to be witnesses together to the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we turn to the word in these next few moments, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us recall for those of us who have been here over the course of the past year, that you would help us to remember what we have heard and what we've rejoiced in and what has, the way you've used your word as an instrument of transformation in our lives and a conviction and belief and compulsion. And Lord, I pray that all of us together would learn and grow, be challenged, and uh, your spirit would work among your people this morning through your word. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for these things in your name. Amen. In the past Uh, I've stressed a unity of the human race as descended from Adam and Eve. It's a core tenet of the Christian faith that there is one human race, one family. The implication of this common ancestry are are hard to overestimate in a world that's so filled with division, uh, divided by nationalism and ideology and often in religion and and certainly in racism, a lot of division in the world. And there's a huge implication for us in this doctrinal reality that when God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. One family from which are descended all who come from them, the human race, to deny the singular racial unity of humanity is to deny the doctrine of creation. This is a fundamental doctrine of our faith. And yet, there's another implication for us here. It's true. We are one family in Adam, right? And some of you are already pulling up a verse. There is one human race descended from Adam, and according to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, In Adam, all die. Well, we were rocking along for a second there. Yeah, one humanity, one one family, right? And the whole family in Adam, all die. For all the movements in history, whether secular, humanistic, or religious, the emphasis on the humanity of all, the, uh, uh, the unity of all humanity or the To make the claim that we are all children of God, let us today remember and confess that the unity of humanity is not finally actually good news. It's true. 
But that doctrine alone is not finally good news. Just as we're united by our birth as descended from one human family, we're also united in death, destined for one divine judgment as a human family. Let me say it again. The unity of the human race descended from Adam and Eve removes any excuses for division and partiality. But as one family, we also share in a fallen nature with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so we covet And so we lie, and so we kill, and so we steal, and all of the things that are common to humanity. If you have any question about those, you say, I don't know if I've coveted, lied, or stolen. Certainly haven't killed anybody, right? Wait until we come to the Sermon on a Mountain in a little while. We'll get there. We're going to bring that up in a little while again. We're going to spend time in the fall in that passage, and Jesus removes all excuse from us. We're all united in rebellion and sin, and for that rebellion and sin, we will be judged. The unity of the human family is not finally good news. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. I would ask you to open in your Bibles if you brought one. If you didn't bring one, there's a paperback Bible near you. We're going to turn together to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, I was sharing with uh, some of the leaders this morning that this is, a, in many ways, a difficult message to prepare because it's a message that could be preached from over a dozen passages in Acts and probably hundreds of verses in the New Testament. This reality of the unity of the human family in need of a Redeemer, right? But in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, it says this. And Peter said to them, as he was preaching the gospel... Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We have to begin our study of the good news with this question. Is the new human race that has begun with this repentance and belief, is the new human race perpetuated through the will of man? We know the old human race descended from Adam and Eve that leads to death, but we then begin to speak of one new family in Christ and the forgiveness of sins. But is it, is it begun and perpetuated by the will of man? Is it, is it a natural family? Is it a, to put it another way, a new Jewish kingdom? And the answer is yes and no. Fundamentally, this much we know for sure. It isn't a kingdom of Jews alone. We know that from our study of Acts but it does have a Jewish king. This is a huge hint for us in our next sermon series in a, in, in a few weeks. Titus is going to throw up the graphic. We're going to spend our time in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're entitling as the lead pastors of Crosspoint got together and began to speak about what, what really is the direction and purpose of this Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we really saw in it that it is the way of the king. 
It is the, his, his, the beautiful way of his kingdom. Of course, the beautiful way of his kingdom holds forth for us severe warnings, of course. But it is the way of his kingdom. We have a king. His name is Jesus. Now, we went to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, just a few moments ago. In Adam all die, right? Let's go back to that passage and see if that's the final word in the matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the promise of which our passage in Acts that we're going to spend time in this morning in Acts 32, 39, it's what it speaks about. It's that promise, the promise that in Christ shall all be made alive. The work of Christ in his gospel, his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sin has secured a promise. What's that promise? Joel spoke of it this morning. Propitiation. That he has suffered the wrath of God upon sinners that is due to all of the race of Adam. And he has reconciled those who have believed to God in faith. This is the grace of God to secure a promise to all who submit themselves to Jesus and trust in his salvation. So Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. As founder, he is the one from whom all of this new righteous and redeemed people come. We are no longer in Adam, but we have been transferred to a new race in Christ. As such, Jesus is the new Adam. He's the beginning of a new family line. We have a new family. God our Father, Christ our brother brought into this family by his spirit. And so, our passage this morning, Acts chapter 2, really we'll be looking at verse 39, for the promise is for you. The promise is for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the promise of forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to our God is in Christ for you? Here's how John Calvin puts this. I think it's so important for us this morning. It is a requirement for certainty of faith that everyone is fully convinced that he is included with those to whom God is speaking. Are you included among those to whom God is speaking when through the apostle Peter, he says the promise is for you? Is that to your heart? Is that to your soul this morning? This is the rule of genuine faith, Calvin continues. Then I am sure that salvation is mine because this is the promise offered for me. I remember it was about 10 years ago when as a believer, as one who understood the way of salvation and had by grace, submitted myself to the way of Christ from a very young age. I remember when this point was driven home to me, that if I have heard the promise declared to me in such a way that I believe that promise is for me, then it is true that my sins have been died for. They are done. There is therefore now no condemnation for me. Because that promise is for me. 
The grace of forgiveness has been purchased and promised to all who receive it by faith. And his faith is as simple as that, to hear and to believe that grace is for me. Is it for you? He continues in our passage this morning, verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children. It's for those who come after you. It's not just a statement for those who are gathered on that day in Acts chapter 2. With his statement, Peter extends the promise chronologically across time and across generations. As we share the gospel with our children, the promise is for them. It's a promise of forgiveness, not only to those who are standing there, but to those who come after. But it continues, verse 39, continue with me. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Now, there's a phrase. I know I've heard it before. It's actually found in Ephesians, where the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme of those who are far off. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I would encourage you, you might as well go ahead and turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It is a powerful passage about what it means to be far off. And what are the implications for those who are far off? Is there any promise for, for them, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, it goes like this. Sorry, Ephesians 2. <laughs> Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, a very, very natural people. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. I tell you, in in my Bible, I can hardly read it. I've underlined this thing in red and blue, and I've highlighted it in yellow. I need to get a new Bible if I'm going to preach on this passage. It's so powerfully important. I am among those who were far off when Peter preached that message in Acts chapter 2. And being one who is far off in Christ, the promise is made to me. I have been brought near. The logic of the words that are in that passage, according to the flesh, according to what is done by hands, according to all that is natural, the Gentiles, that is, those who were not descended from Abraham and not a part of the Jewish people, were cut off and separated from Christ, having no hope. And there's a period at the end of that sentence, and that concerns me. Is there any sentence to come after? Yeah. But by the blood of Christ, those who were far off, have been brought near. The promise of the gospel is a reconciling gospel, a gospel that is making a new people, a new people not simply by heritage or descent or ancestry, but a people by grace through faith. Just a few verses later in Ephesians 2.16, it makes it explicit. It says that he might reconcile us both 
those who were near and those who were far away might be reconciled both to God in one body through the cross. I think that's so important. It does not say that God's got this great way to make two reconciled bodies. Now, there is one new family. One new family. And by this reconciliation through the cross, he kills the hostility. And Adam, we who are all one family according to the flesh, all according to the flesh in, in our sin, in our rebellion, we have been divided in nearly every conceivable way throughout history. But in Christ, the redeemed have been made one body by grace through faith. A new family is a family, not of division, but of reconciliation. This is the work of our God and his gospel. Our new family heritage is no longer in Adam according to the flesh, but in Christ according to faith. Now, we get to go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And then he pulls it all together with this phrase. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. I love the the emphasis of that statement. He's already said it. I mean, it's those who are you, your children, and those who are far off. Like that's promises is for everyone who would believe. And then he says it's for everyone. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. Here's what we have to remember and submit ourselves to. The Lord is the Lord of salvation, or he's not the Lord. He is the head of a new redeemed family. He is our sovereign, particularly over salvation. If the Lord calls you, then you belong to him. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, the passage says. Everyone whom the Lord calls, this promise is for you. The the effectual call of God is the link in what's called the golden chain in Romans 8, 29 through 30. I would encourage you, write that in the margin of your Bible in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Write this passage from Romans 8, 29 and 30. And it's in the midst of this golden chain where the work of God's grace is first applied to the human soul. Here's what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The firstborn, right? He is the one from which the family comes. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, Jesus is the sovereign over salvation. So the promise is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. You see, God has a family. It's a family that he's determined to call to himself, and he gets to make that call. It's a people that the Father has given to the Son. It's a people whom the Son has secured by grace, and it's a people to whom the Spirit has given the gift of faith. This is God's family. He's the sovereign Lord over us, and he is the gracious King who reigns over us, and he is our gracious father that unites us. Adam, Adam was the seed from 
which all people on earth have descended. And in Adam, we received the curse of sin. You get that. And with every step of our own rebellion and sin, we prove ourselves to be sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Yes, that's my family. But in Christ, there is a new seed. In Christ, there is a new family. And from that seed grows a new, diverse, global family of the redeemed. Now, I'm going to take us back to Ephesians. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3 this time. It is, I believe, actually chapter 3 this time. In Ephesians chapter 3, if you go to verses 8, 9, and 10, this is a mind-blowing passage of Scripture, if you can see what's going on here. Not just pass over it as you're reading through. Look at it with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's being preached? It's the gospel. And the gospel in this case is called the unsearchable riches of Christ. Like search it. Go for it. You're not going to get to the end of it. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery Hidden for ages in God. I'm like, I like mystery novels. All right. I, I like watching Netflix shows that are mysterious and there's like a puzzle to find out and you wait till the final episode and, and they're going to finally tell us what happens and they don't tell us what happens and you have to come back next season. But I like that. <laughs> and here we're told that there is a plan of the mystery that's been hidden for ages in God. And then he tells us what it is. And you don't even have to wait till next season. God who created all things so that, and here's the mystery, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? The great mystery of the ages is being manifest Through the church. He didn't make a movie about it. He didn't just give us the scriptures about it. He is revealing to a watching heavenly places his manifold wisdom. And when he says, check out how wise I am, he points at a redeemed people, redeemed by the Son, called by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit. Friends, this is why I'm staunchly a churchman. I believe in the church, not because I believe in us, not because I believe in any any organization or institution or group of leaders, any gathering of believers I've ever seen. They've all disappointed. But I'm confident and compelled by the fact that God has chosen to reveal his manifold wisdom in and through a particular people of his own calling. And I want to see it. I want to see what the heavenly places are looking into. I just saw this week uh, on, I don't know why this makes the news, but evidently a, 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 a president had tweeted out what his Apple playlist has been in the last year. And somehow that, that, that country song, it's not really a country song, but it's kind of a country song, it made it into that list. And that was like big news 
that a former president had been listening to a song. This passage tells us that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places have been paying attention to the manifold wisdom of God revealed in the church. I find that compelling. Far more compelling than I'm going to go listen to a song because a former president listened to a song. I want to pay attention to what the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are listening in on. It's through us. It's through Christ's church that heaven and earth has the greatest display of the manifold wisdom of God. Listen, it's not in the ocean that teems with life. It's not the mountains glorious in the clouds, blanketed with snow. It's not the sun and the moon and the galaxies and the stars. It's not in the most intimidating black hole and the smartest, the smallest particles of physics. God's manifold wisdom is on display through the church. For it's through the church that redemption accomplished by the Son and applied is revealed and grows up into glory. It's through the church that the unsearchable riches of Christ are on display. Really? I'm a, I'm a part of the church. And, and we're, we're the church together. With all the saints, you and your children and those who are far off the church, and we get to be the playground of the manifold wisdom of God. Acts. Acts is where we see the church burst forth the manifold wisdom of God by the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to focus on the way that we see a genuine global diversity with the birth of the church. Part of the manifold wisdom of God is that there is a global diversity to his church, that that the Son is able to reconcile to God himself and to one another, those whom in Adam have been so divided. With the flourishing of the church, we have not that fallen unity of humanity in Adam. We have the glorious and eternal unity of a people from every tribe and tongue and nation through the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider what we've seen in Acts. I'll just give you a few examples. In Acts chapter 2, right? Peoples gathered from every nation. Not only that, but they spoke the languages of the nations from which they came, most of which were Jews, but they still spoke the languages of the nations. And they knew the peoples and cultures from which they came. There's a beautiful diversity among the people of God right from the launch there at Pentecost. Consider the diversity of the names and regions of origin of many of the leaders of the church. We have Saul of Tarsus, better known as the Apostle Paul. He's Saul of Tarsus, which is actually in southeastern Turkey. Saul of Tarsus. We have Lucius, the Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in the north coast of modern-day Libya in Africa. And he's one of the leaders in Antioch, along with Simeon, who is, we're told, is called Niger likely a reference to the dark color of his skin. And he was there in Antioch with the leaders, hearing from the Spirit of God when the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were set out on a great missionary journey, the first sending church. 
beautiful and diverse. Going out to get more of their brothers and sisters among the nations. Last week, we considered the witness of the Holy Spirit himself to the reality that there is one redeemed family, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We see in Acts how the church bursts forth not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but we see how it spreads through Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And this is an ongoing work. Peter and Paul see how the Holy Spirit is pleased to call even Gentiles to faith and repentance. And the gospel has flourished among the Gentiles. And the growth continues. Christ's church is a diverse global family. Acts 29. Now, if you're getting ready to flip there, there isn't one. Uh, it actually ends at chapter 28. I'm not going to try to extend the series by writing a new chapter. All right. Acts 29 is the name of the church planting network of which Cross Point Coast is a part. We, we picked up on this name because of the reality of the scriptures. We say that God's story that he has begun in Acts of a people of witness, bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is continuing in the midst of his church as he plays out the manifesting of his manifold wisdom in our midst. We say that we are, in Acts 29, a diverse global family of church-planting churches. This is, this is who we are. It's right there in our name, Acts 29, the story continues. This morning I debated whether or not to show this video. We really don't show a lot of videos, though I've shown like three in the last four weeks. I had shown like one in the last seven years prior to this. But this morning I just kept coming back to it, and I thought we have to show you the video of Mitch and Amanda Munoz from Los Chilitos, Guatemala. A compelling story of, I'm watching this guy, and I'm watching this lady, and I'm thinking, they are ridiculously ordinary. They, they look like me when I showed up in Brevard County and just said, God, I kind of want to share the gospel here and I pray that you'll grow up your church. And that's exactly what God did in our midst. And so I hope you enjoy and appreciate this video. Then we'll come back and consider just a few implications that the word has for us right here in Brevard County, just like it played out for Mitch and Amanda in Los Chilitos. Guatemala. Entre las dificultades que tenemos, tenemos que siempre perseverar y luchar y, y siempre tener la confianza en aquel quien llevó todo en, en aquella cruz para nuestra salvación. Murió por mí, rodó su sangre. Y por su sangre hoy creo que soy salvo por su misericordia, por su gracia. Y esto lo, es mi historia de lo que he recibido de Dios. When we came to Guatemala and um, we didn't know anyone, we came into the village. I wanted to share the gospel, but at the same time I was really scared. Uh, there was a school being built in one of the villages and there was two construction workers uh, that were working on it and so I would kind of go towards them like I'm going to share the gospel and then I get a little scared and I just kind of walk around them and it got to the point where I got hungry and so um, I bought like a family pack of uh, chicken 
and I decided that I was going to go and just eat with them and, uh, and, and talk to them about Jesus. And uh, I just, I made a, like a deadbolt, like I'm just going to walk straight to them and uh, ask them if they wanted to eat. And uh, they said, yeah. And so I just, that's kind of how it started. Moving to Guatemala was nerve-wracking at first, but it's something that I had been prepared to do. More than anything, the church is confused. There's such a need for healthy churches to be planted, and especially in places like this in rural Guatemala where there aren't very many churches, much less healthy churches. We originally didn't come to uh, to, to plant a church. We came um, to share the gospel. It kind of got to the point where there was uh, several people accepting Christ as their Savior that, that I realized um, that, hey, we, we need to, if we want this thing to, to last or, or to go beyond a man and I, then we need to raise up uh, pastors, we need to raise up uh, deacons and leaders. Axel and I played a, a pivotal role in, in, in our story. Um, when, when we came down and, and we just wanted to share the gospel and we saw people starting to get saved, um, I really didn't know uh, anything about how to plant a church um, at all. I mean, I couldn't have even told you what the difference between a Bible study and a church was. Uh, and so the, the assessment process was unbelievably thorough and unbelievably great. We have probably about 25 adults that, uh, that are members and probably around 20 to 30 um, kids um, that, that, come, that come to church. Some of the, the, the villagers just started giving and asking how they can give. So a lot, most of our tithes are in corn, uh, bean. Um, we've been given a, given a pig and, and, and raised it and sold it uh, and, and use those funds to, to buy you know, chairs or, or, or take care of different needs within the congregation. I feel like if we only planted one church, it, it would kind of be like a failure. Uh, in the sense that um, we, I feel like I wouldn't have trained them correctly to be able to make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. There's so many villages and there's so many people that don't know Jesus. And uh, there's so many people, uh, there's just a lot of people who are lost. You know, and there's a lot of people who um, are, are sinking into an eternal darkness. And so we're called to push back what's dark in this world and give people an opportunity to, to be saved. We're in a battle over the eternal destiny of immortal souls. I mean, we have to, to, to give people an opportunity to know Jesus as their Savior. Whether they're born in a village or, or a city or, or wherever they might be in, in, in any corner of the world, that there would be a, a church there that they could go to and hear the gospel and be saved. So we can't just, it can't end here. We have, we have to go. It can't end here. We have to go. That's the compelling reality. We can see it in Mitch and Amanda's story in Guatemala. You can see the beauty of what Christ has done in purchasing a diverse global family. But I'll tell you what I see when I, when I watch that. I see a, a beautiful church. Uh, you know, the first thing that struck me was he said about 25 adults. We were three years in this facility and there were about 25 adults and about that many children as well right here. And, and God grew up a church and I, I saw the kids and I, and I thought of the people 
that are back in CP Kids that are worshiping Jesus and becoming and making disciples. And I saw the adults that went through, and I saw the faces of my community group. And I saw some of the teenagers, and I thought of the point just this last Friday, and I saw some of the other people that were just walking along the road, and I thought of my neighbors that I waved to as I was driving through this morning. And then I, I remembered this simple reality from that little testimony. He showed up in Guatemala in a town and he said, I wasn't really coming here to plant a church. I was just going there to share the gospel. Well, you know what happens? (laughs) That's the way it works. That's our business. We are gospel planters and God grows up his church. And then we're like, we got to deal with that. We plant the gospel. And how did it happen? Who can plant the gospel? Well, somebody who can just be really nervous and really awkward one day and think, I think I need to talk to somebody in this town about Jesus. And, and I see chicken. It's not Kentucky fried chicken. It's Guatemalan fried chicken. And they, he sees it and he thinks, I'm going to buy a family pack. I'm going to walk over to those constructors and workers and ask them if they want to do lunch. And what do construction workers say when you bring them fried chicken? Let's do lunch. And they had lunch. And by grace, they talked about the gospel like what Mitch and Amanda seem to do everywhere they go. What if we were people who ate lunches? (laughs) What if that's what this diverse global family went and did? Because we know we have brothers and sisters in this county who like to eat lunch. And don't know Jesus. We went and had lunch. We talked about Jesus. And we joined with Mitch in saying, I, I, don't, I don't know about going to Guatemala. I don't know about going to Mongolia or South Africa. Maybe some of us have gone. Others have not yet gone, but rather have sent. But it can't end here. We have to go. The verse global family is here. There's just a few implications for us. This isn't yet another sermon to tell you to go and make disciples. I I don't like to beat up a congregation and telling you to just, you need to have missionary zeal. And you're like, we do. We love Jesus and we want other people to know Jesus, pastor. But man, we need help. What I want to do this morning is I wanted to lay out doctrinal clarity. Every time the doctrinal clarity that, that, that compels our missionary zeal so that we don't forget it, so that we just have zeal, not compelled by knowledge of Christ. But what I know about this church is I know you've got it. I know you have a zeal for the gospel. I know that you're trying to to be about missionary work. And so this morning, what I want to encourage is I want to encourage a missionary creativity. Let us think. Here's what It's very simple. Missionary creativity is fried chicken, okay? We're all at least as creative as getting hungry for lunch. Let's think. Let's pray. Let's converse about how we can go where we have not yet gone in Brevard County. And it might not even mean a new person or a new place. It might mean a different conversation. How can we go there? And then let us go. 
Let's send and let's go. There is a great diversity of peoples and nations and backgrounds and experiences both within and just outside of our neighborhoods where we live. And it's going to take a prayerful creativity, a gospel-compelled missional innovation for us to discover how we can be witnesses as a church in these communities, in our neighborhoods, and among the peoples of Brevard County. You know, one of the things that I want to share with you as we enter this new season and as we enter a new fiscal year at Cross Point Coast, we're already engaged in this effort on a truly global scale. In 2019, we set aside 11% of the church's giving, that's $36,000 to be leveraged for global mission. That mission went to places like Daytona and Palm Bay and Williamsburg and South Africa and Mongolia. In 2020, we're increasing this to 12%, to $41,500 It's being set aside. We're setting aside those funds in addition for Cape Canaveral and the church planting effort that Joel and the community group there are going to lead us in, while also doubling our contribution to three of our church planters and missionary organizations that we've partnered with even in this year already. And one of the things about Cross Point Coast is, is every calendar year we put together a very conservative budget. We sort of have a, a zero dollar policy about putting together our budgets. But even so, because we don't want to be a highly institutionalized and programmed church, instead of a church, we want to be a church that is engaged in daily, on the ground, local mission that costs as much as a chicken dinner. So we, what we find out is we, we just never spend all the funds. At a staff meeting just this past week, I want you to know that as staff and directors and leaders, we really do strive to be wise with the funds. And we were together with all the directors and Joel and I, and we were showing them that they still have funds available in their various areas of responsibility. And I I told them that we want to leverage those funds that are still available as we come to the end of our fiscal year. We want to leverage those for mission. And I saw their eyes light up. They weren't like, you're going to steal our funds that are available and use them for other things? No. You see, the directors have a mentality not of use it or lose it. They have a mentality of use it or give it. A mentality of generosity. And so I would challenge us in this way. If after you've given what your conscience before the Lord is, is free to contribute in our offering for our, to provide for our shared mission, that very budget of which I spoke, and God has provided for you an even greater margin, I encourage you to adopt the same mentality of those directors. Use it or give it. Know that the elders are working hard so that these funds go to missions and church plants that we are genuinely and deeply aligned with, Christ-centered partners in the gospel. And if you want to give directly to these missions, that's even better. Let's cut out the middleman. Let's just give it right there. In the next few months, we will we intend to develop a clearer communication with you, uh, particularly on the website, about how you can give directly to our mission partners on the website this fall. Now, it can sound like I just said, Guatemala, and then all these faraway places, and you need to be on mission on the ground, so give money. I don't want to be caught saying that. It's a part of the way that we send to enable mission and an ongoing multiplication. But that is not the final application. 
I want to encourage small groups of families considering shared interests and opportunities in the community to adopt a missional posture. We're launching our community groups this week. Many community groups have just continued to meet during the course of the summer. Some community groups are starting up this week. But as you gather, prayerfully adopt a missional posture together. Here's what I mean. Spend time in conversation and prayer about how you might better engage with your community or a nearby neighborhood or a local missionary opportunity. And then out of this prayer and these conversations in these community groups, may we discover how to better point our community to Jesus Christ. This is called missional innovation as partners in the gospel. This is really the heart of the call this morning. If you believe that in Christ the promise is that God is cultivating a new, diverse, global family of the redeemed. I want us to call ourselves to missional innovation and prayer and the leveraging of what the Holy Spirit has given to us, his gifts to his church for the sake of his glory and mission. And friends, he's given us so much. You are a gifted people. And I know you have the zeal. Now let us go to the Lord in prayer together and then go where he would send us. There's a natural disposition in the culture of the church at large in the U.S. and probably likely elsewhere in the West to wait for staff or elders or other leaders to tell us how to do mission. What we're saying is we will continue to lead with doctrinal clarity and missional innovation, but we're limited because the elders aren't the church. The staff is not the church. The church is partners together. The Holy Spirit does not reside in the elders alone, but rather he is at work in the church, making his manifold wisdom known. And so we need the creativity and prayer of the partners together. If we are to do something as households and couples together, let's do it. And if there's resources that you need in order to do it, talk to the elders. We'll figure it out. And if there's something that we need to do as a congregation together, let's talk and let's do it. Let's gather. Let's spend this week in community group. And some of you are like, I'm not a part of a community group. Here we go. Let's talk. We'll get you there. This week, I would call you to spend an intentional time in prayer and conversation about how you can engage in mission together. And the second thing I want you to do is I want you to arrange a time for coffee or lunch. I told you it's as simple as chicken. It can be as simple as coffee, people. Arrange a time for a coffee or a lunch with another partner in the gospel or another household at Cross Point Coast to talk together about what you think God might be doing to move you further into mission. And then do it and arrange another lunch and another coffee, but this time maybe it's with a partner and someone else. And in that way, we will go and we will see the manifold wisdom of God on display before our very eyes and in our very midst by the work of the Spirit of God among us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's your family. You are the sovereign Lord. You are the head of the church. And by grace, it's become our family. It's us. We are part of this diverse global family. We were the far off who have been brought near by grace. I pray that that would compel us 
and that we would be incredibly practical and on the ground and utterly dependent upon you for that chicken dinner moment, those words, that conversation. And then, like Mitch said, he just said, I'm going to make a beeline over there and I'm going to talk to him, that you would give us that boldness as well to go with the gospel. And Lord, we've already seen it right here in our midst. You would grow up your church for your glory and our good. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for these things in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have promise. Amen.